Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. I'm Rachel Woody, and I'm here with Rich Schmidt. It's March 24th, 2015, and we are here with Andrew and Andrea Beckham at Beckham Estate Vineyards. And our first question for you is why wine? Why wine? Well, would you like to take this one? <laughs> I'd be happy to. So we, we went into this project with... Um, with blind intentions. We'd planned to build a pottery studio when we purchased the property here in, in 2004, as I was showing my work at the Lawrence Gallery and some other galleries regionally. And we were in Burlingame and needed more space. Uh, so we found the property in Timber and had a building here that we thought we could easily convert to a pottery studio. Um, just a few months after being out here, we uh, discovered our neighbor's vineyard um, our neighbors, Fred and Jill Newton, were in their early 80s and were growing Chardonnay and Pinot Noir vines. Um, Fred had someone make wine for them and, and sell it on the weekends. And the idea of doing something on our property became of great interest to Andrea and I. So in 2004 or 5, we clear-cut the timber um, and rented the heavy equipment to clear and prep the land, um, planning to grow wine grapes initially. And after delivering the fruit in 2007 and 8 to a winery in the Dundee Hills. Um, I was bitten with a wine bug and, and we launched into figuring out how to make wine. So I'll, I'll back up just a, a tad on this. He came home and said, let's plant a couple rows just for fun. And I humored him and said, sure, honey, whatever. <laughs> and next thing I know, it's clear cutting, starting vines in our living room and, and launching into planting two and a half acres. So a couple of rows just for fun turned into two and a half acres that first year. There were many a late evening on the on the couch propagating vines while watching television and making a huge mess of our living room. <laughs> Prior to children. Um, and why did you choose this area specifically? Well, it was happenstance. We we found the property with um, the potential to, to do what we wanted initially is to build the pottery studio and it just so happened that, that the elevation was right, the aspect was right, the soil type would work for, for growing wine grapes uh, and it kind of it fell into our lap. We, we uh, were fortunate enough to have all those stars align. Was there, uh, was there a specific reason why, is wine something that you have always enjoyed? Is it is it more of a making it or a drinking it? Was it something that was there a reason that made you excited to try making it and growing it? Initially, it was the the um, excitement of growing something on the property, and that transition. Let's let's put some vines in the ground. Let's grow something with the, on the land. And then, the more we researched, and by research I mean book research wine drinking research, um, talking to a ton of people, the, the more our, our um, mutual interest just blossomed. So he went and after putting vines in the ground, he went and volunteered time in other people's vineyards to really focus on learning how to grow the best fruit possible first. I, on the other hand, went and learned on the business side of things and went um, 
on the weekends and worked in a tasting room and volunteered at events and started working with our lower, local wine growers association, the Shehala Mountain Wine Growers. And um, from there, everything just blossomed. We kind of had roots in the ground and then let everything um, come into place after that. Was that an interest you had, the business side of things? Is that an interest in your background that you were excited about? I was originally going to go to physical therapy school. <laughs> and um, when we bought the property, I kind of had to make a decision. Do I go to graduate school at Pacific or do we really focus and take this route? And I think I made the right choice. Now, I know it kind of started as just for fun and then became an endeavor in which you've researched and experimented and really jumped in. What was that like emotionally just to prepare for that? It's scary, exciting, all of the above? <laughs> all of the above. Um. I think we've come at it with different perspectives, however. I'm, I'm the visionary and I squint my eyes and have grand dreams that are <laughs> seemingly unattainable and Andrea is the realist. I'm the tether to reality. So you know we I think we've we've come at this from different places but it's been the two of us that have have made the endeavor work. And terrific support from family and friends as well. We couldn't have done it completely on our own. Um, we've we've had enormous support from from all of our family. Yeah. And you guys have young kids. How does that integrate now and and in the future, 20 years from now, do you see them continuing the, the new family business? <laughs> you would hope. <laughs> you know, you're, you hope that you're uh, propagating um, something for, for the future. And we can only show them what's possible and let them make their own choices from there. But I, um, as we were speaking, Susan Sokol Blosser is such an inspiration uh, and in what she's done. In fact, her first book I read at a pretty pivotal moment where we had young kids, he's working every morning in the vineyard, during the day at school, at night at the winery, and um, there's a lot happening and not a lot of free time to spend together. So I think learning from those that started before us has been, has been a huge help. Now you mentioned Andrew's schedule, and that's something we were kind of curious about when we were looking at some of the background information. It doesn't appear that you ever really sleep, so we're kind of curious <laughs> between your between family and school and wine. We're trying to kind of curious how you figured out a way to manage all of that. I do sleep. I just don't take a lot of breaks. Um, and there are, there are times in the year when it's incredibly challenging. Uh, crush. I tend to start at the winery between three and four a.m. and I work a three or four hour shift before I go to teach at Beaverton High School for the day. And then I return at three or four in the afternoon and, and stay until the task at hand is completed. So there are lots of nights where I get only two or three hours of sleep at best. And um, the carrot there is that there is a starting point and an ending point. And eventually we reach a point of closure and those hard hours are, are over with. It's, it's a month or a month and a half of a stretch. It's and a finite time. Yeah, so I don't get to see the kids or my wife at all during that time unless they show up at the winery. We, um, we, we provide sustenance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, you know, we, we run into the same sorts of time crunch issues um, when we're getting closer to harvest and we're in the thick of things in the vineyard. 
um, mm -hmm. where the, the kids will come out with a Gatorade or a Popsicle to Go find, find Daddy. Dad. And yeah. <laughs> it can be some relief. Kids are old enough now that they it's fun. They can help with certain things. Um, our son is at the perfect height for leaf pulling. So it's, he's excellent. He's, yeah, he's, excellent. he's good for at least three or four vines. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia likes to, um, she loves harvest. She wants to be out there with her, her clippers and her bucket and getting tickets just like everybody else. Olivia likes to be the great grape tester. She's not as interested in trudging up and down the hill just quite yet. Um, I think she'll be on the more uh, sales side of things is my guess. <laughs> the human element. Yeah. <laughs> Finding the balance is, is a challenge. I still really enjoy and, and love teaching and sharing with others my passion um, of making pots and, and being a potter. So giving that up uh, would be tough. And I, I really, at this point, am still quite interested in, in maintaining my, um, my position as a teacher. And it seems like you're pretty lucky to be doing that. There are not very many ceramics teachers anywhere, I imagine. There are not very many art teachers at all. In the, and how did, that, how did that come about? How did you get into teaching? Uh, well, so I, I moved to Park City, Utah after finishing Lewis and Clark College with two seemingly hard to find employment majors. And I was a major in history and in ceramics. And I decided to move to Park City to ski and spent uh, about five years there skiing 100 days a year and during that time I found a small art center at the bottom of Main Street and got a membership there and then began producing ceramic work that I started to show in some local galleries and and then eventually was offered a position as uh, the ceramics instructor at the Kimball Art Center. So I um, taught there for about two or three years and uh, with some encouragement from my parents and after after meeting my wife and transplanting her from Utah to Oregon, I came back here and, and earned my master's at Lewis and Clark and started teaching in 2000. Not to mention he comes from a long line of, of educators, very long line of educators. So may I ask how you two met? <laughs> <laughs> um, we met in Park City on the rooftop of a 4th of July party, both clinging to the um, the chimney stack. Oh. <laughs> yeah. A rooftop party on the 4th of July on a metal roof with several <laughs> kegs that, that you had to access by going through a hatch in the roof. It was, yeah, yeah we were both terrified <laughs> and hanging onto the chimney for dear life. So struck up a conversation, found out he was the ceramics <sighs> instructor at, at uh, the Kimball Art Center. I had thoroughly enjoyed ceramics as in high school and was working in Park City and, and going to school at the University of Utah. And uh, he told me he had a class coming up in September and September came around and I signed up for his class. Yes, I asked her out, yeah. <laughs> did you make her go through the whole class before you did or? No, I think it was like just one period or, or one, one session one in session rather. In. Yeah. How was, goodness. 1998, so a little while ago. Yeah. I think his parents saw the writing on the wall. He was getting serious and lured him back with graduate school. Graduate school and a wife. <laughs> so we uh, moved back to Oregon in 2000. He was going to Lewis and Clark to get his MAT. And, um, and then I started at Portland State 
and then we got married, moved out here. The first 2004 was the, when we moved out here. The first teaching job I interviewed for, I got, which was was pretty great. Out of the six of us that were in the art cohort, cohort, I was the only one who gained employment um, right away, and in fact, at all, as far as I know, in in the art field. Um, so I started at Beaverton teaching five different plans. I, I taught photography and painting and art one and art two and I had one ceramic section but the kids could tell right away that's where my passion was and over the course of a couple years I grew that one section to ten and I taught full-time I've been teaching full-time pottery there um, for 13 years. We had and to hire more art teachers to teach all of the other things because everyone wanted to take ceramic. I've been really lucky to have hung on to my job. We went from four and a half teachers to two uh, about three years ago. In the Beaverton district, we suffered some, some pretty catastrophic um, loss in terms of um, FTE. And, and so I was lucky to hang on. Yeah, yeah. we're hoping this year we might add another teacher. Program's growing again. Good. Well, I've got one more specific question for the Beckhams. And Andrea, it's mostly for you since you're jumping into the business side. We found it quite impressive that you decided to become, I think, was the chair or executive chair of the Shehalem AVA. Decided <laughs> is a, an interesting word. Um, the, it's a fancy title, but it's really a lot of emails, really, um, and board meetings. The, the Shehalem Mountains Wine Growers Association I, uh, when we, uh, right after we started planting, figured I better go learn and make some connections and have resources to be able to ask when we need, you know, have, a, have an issue that arises. And so asked how I could um, get involved. And it just hap so happened that that year, um, this was 2005 and 2006, the organization was forming. So David Adelsheim and a group from the sh who had vineyards and wineries in the Shehala Mountains was was forming the association, um, a 501c6 nonprofit, and so I sent an email to David Adelsheim and said uh, we just we just uh, purchased some land and have started planting, and we hear that you are starting an organization. How can we get involved? And from that email led to this. You know, the organization's just forming, we're having our first meeting, we showed up, we asked some questions, and I just started volunteering. In 2008, their executive director went on maternity leave, and I had just left my position um, as running a physical therapy spine clinic. And uh, we had two children, and so they asked if I would step in while this young lady was on maternity leave and then she didn't come back. So <laughs> I just stayed, I continued. And um, the, the association has really been a fantastic way for us. Um, when you're living on the property, you feel slightly isolated. You know, you're out here, your neighbors are acres away. Not all of them are necessarily in the community. Um, there are more vineyards being planted on Parrot Mountain, but at the time that we started, there were only a very few. So we're not right in the thick of the Dundee Hills and Yamhill Carlton. For us, it was a, a marvelous way to um, have a sense of community. And so that's how I got started. I, uh, kind of all up on that point, uh, one of the things we find when we talk to people is, and from what we've learned, is sort of the, the wine community and the, 
the small world it is mm -hmm. and the, how tight the bonds are. Did you feel, when you came in, did you feel welcomed into the community? Do you now welcome other people? Is it that kind of relationship mm -hmm. still? Absolutely, absolutely. There's um, a number of people who are just moving to this area right here on Parrot Mountain and purchasing land with the intention of, of planting vineyards. And so they see someone that's already established and it's, it's um, you're welcoming them with lots of questions and remembering where we started, um, you know, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I think the Willamette Valley is celebrating 50 years. We're celebrating 10 years this year. And so it's a pretty big milestone for us. Um, the sense of community is amazing. I feel honored to have David Adelsheim on speed dial. You know, <laughs> I've, if something comes up and I have a question, it's amazing that I can reach out to some of those pioneers. Um, and, and find the answers that we need. Still, when we're looking to plant something new, something other than Pinot Noir or Chardonnay, um, to have the experience and the breadth of knowledge at your fingertips is incredible. Yeah. What have you, what changes have you noticed in the decade you've been doing wine? It's grown rapidly, really, um, as has the quality. I mean, you have to look really hard to find something that isn't enjoyable. Um, the level of quality, and I think that that is attributed to the sense of community. A rising tide floats all boats, as they say. You know, we don't want bad Pinot Noir out in the world. So folks are really interested in making sure that their neighbors um, have have what they need to have the resources they need to make really excellent grow great fruit to make excellent wine. Mm -hmm. So, so sort of branching off from that, <coughs> what would you say the Shehillam Mountain region is known for? And then, if you wanted to speak more broadly, what is it about Oregon wine that differentiates from the rest of the world, in your opinion? Well, you're the Shehillam Mountain director, <laughs> India. <laughs> uh, what it's known for? Oh goodness, we we. That's a great question. Um, the Shehillam Mountains ABA is to to be in the to, to be in that ABA. It's above the 200. Um, you have to be above 200 foot sea level uh, mark and be within a, a defined, you know, region. Um, and then it, there's three very distinct soil types. You have the marine sediment, you have the um, loess, and the volcanic jory. And for us over here on Parrot Mountain, it's, it's jory, fractured basalt, volcanic, um, we're on this this mountain up here. When you say the Shehala Mountains, people think very mountainous region. Um, there's lots of hills, and most of the vineyards are on these 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 hillsides. Um, we're still working on a specific qualitative taste, if you will, because the region is is so vast and so dramatic. But you have these these pockets of of um, of soil types and uh, land masses, if you will. Um. What would you say for the wine that you've made so far, 
what is the Beckham Estate Vineyards taste or what is it that you strive for to have your wine taste like? Nice. Yeah, we we definitely are trying to stay true to site and, and vintage. Um, so we are, our intent with the wines we're making off of our estate are uh, to, to not manipulate um, and doctor or muck around with. So we really try to let the fruit speak for itself and each vintage here um, show its true expression. Um, he spends so much time working in the vineyard all year long um, to produce clean, beautiful fruit. And I think that that shows in the wine. Very beautiful, clean, varietal specific Pinot Noir. Really, really pretty, pretty wines. Maybe loosely related to that, we we also want to be stewards of the land, and so our practice here, um, since we live here with our children, and and want to be conscious and and want to be taking care of of this property that will be someone else's at some point in life, um, includes organic farming. Uh, we we dry farm, so we hand water vines in establishment the first year, and then let them push roots uh, until they find a source of of water. Um, Hand watering with a hose the first year. That's fun. Yeah, now that it's the just kids about are, to start. I know we're starting all over again. <laughs> I was like, I did that the first year. Uh. We're gonna let Sophia handle that. Our <laughs> eight-year-old with a hose. Um, do you have a Do you have a favorite varietal to drink or to or to grow? I mean, is Pinot it, or do you have other favorites as well? We, we both certainly enjoy Pinot Noir, but we're right now really interested in exploring some other varietals that, that should work in Oregon, but that no one is growing here. Uh, so we're making a trip this June to the Jura in France, and we're quite interested in, in Poussard uh, Trousseau, which a couple people have planted in the Willamette Valley. We know Jason Wett has an acre or so of Trousseau um, in Sauvignon. Uh, we're additionally interested in exploring some other uh, white varietals uh, that, that people aren't growing in Oregon that might lend themselves to making wine in Amphora. Uh, but obviously Pinot Noir is, is the mothership <laughs> out here. Um, some Chardonnay and we have a little bit of, of Riesling. Love Oregon Riesling. Beautiful, high acid, um, very, very food friendly. And there's some incredible producers um, here in Oregon and, and folks that you can lean on for support as far as, you know, they've been there, they've done it, they've trialed it for a number of years. And Oregon Riesling's amazing. Mm -hmm. We are, are in the midst right now of getting ready to plant 11 additional acres to the east of us. And we're going about it a little differently than, than some might or have gone about things in the Willamette Valley. We're planting rootstock and we're gonna field or chip graft it in two years. So we've got three different um, types of rootstock we're putting in based on soil type and, and intention. And we're, we will, in a couple years, decide what fruiting varietal we're going to graft to, the, to those rootstocks. So it gives us some time to, to figure out what's gonna go where and find the budwood that we would like to work with. So is that the, is that the intent to just sort of see what works best or is there another intent to that process? Uh, well, the intention behind putting the rootstock in up front is that we can get things established and started now uh, versus trying to, to find the budwood and work with a nursery to do all that bench crafting for us. So it'll give us a couple year head start. And economically. Um, and then that you know gives us some freedom of flexibility when we go to, to graft that budwood 
onto the rootstock. We can we can pick and choose what we want to put where. Uh, certainly, we are in the in the spirit of investigation and experimentation. Uh, we want to try some some test blocks of some varietals that are uncommon here. Before you go out and just blanket plant things. Yeah. So this is kind of changing gears a little bit here. We as we've interviewed people and talked to people in the industry, we find the wide variety of backgrounds that people have before they come into the industry. And it's almost never, as in your case, almost never a first thought as this is what I'm going to, I'm mm -hmm. going to do wine when I grow up. Um, we haven't talked to a lot of people with a liberal arts background. So we're curious as to what your liberal arts background, um, <laughs> if you feel like it has helped you in any way, if you feel like it has prepared you in a different way than other people, or if you feel that it's set you up in, for success. I mean, uh, I have. <laughs> well, I've got a few thoughts. <laughs> I, a few thoughts. I encourage students that I have at, at Beaverton who don't have a real sense of direction when they're, you know, 17 or 18 years old to look at a liberal arts degree. It really, I think, gives one great exposure to, to lots of different thoughts and philosophies and ways of looking at life and different, different manners to think about things. And, and I certainly feel like that that was a, a, a fantastic approach for me, um, not only as a learner, but eventually where it's taken me in, in terms of career um, to get us to where we're at. I, I think that having majored in ceramics uh, with a, a second major in history seems so obscure uh, in the moment, but in reality I'm actually using big pieces of those two majors with everything we're doing here, um, with, the, with the amphora and and making wine in the amphora. We're both touching on art and history. Um, and I, I think that it was a marvelous way for me to, to get some footing and, and a sense of being as grounded. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think from that standpoint, it also, having that very creative mind, um, he doesn't have a perceived notion necessarily, if you will, of everything's part of the whole. And so pieces that come that weren't necessarily there in the beginning or you didn't think about get incorporated. And he's used to taking, you know, a raw, just this raw piece and creating something from it. Um, so he's he's really just the way his mind works. He's able to take something and and you know and say change it, but help it see its full potential. And that happens in a number of different ways. So it's it's a lot of fun. And then I get to put what? numbers to it. <laughs> what are you pointing at, Dad? How you transform it? What? How to start? How did you transform the tasting room? How did that start? Thank you, Steve. <laughs> How did I transform it? The, the tasting room is a kind of a funny, a funny story. I built this thing twice. So the, twice. the yeah, the first Not time, easy. the first time I built it, it was going to be a casita that went on top of the garage at my parents' beach house in Nesquin. Uh, it's a really cool historic home built in 1918, and we were in the midst of restoring the property and. And uh, the garage was going in front, and Dad and, and myself thought it would be really great to have a little uh, area for kids to hang out and have sleepovers. And so it was a very complicated thing to construct. And by the time I got the last piece of sheeting on the roof at the end of the summer, my mother looked at me and said, it's too tall, tear it down. 
So on principle, I wasn't about to just rip Whole it to pieces. Work. <laughs> I, I took it apart and cryptically labeled the roof rafters. Um, I made a mistake fall. of using a pencil, which ultimately faded to nothing over, over the course of four uh, years. Um, but I, I brought the building back in big sections on a trailer from the beach and put it under plastic and it sat for about four years and then I, I resurrected it uh, in 2011 and was able to somehow figure out how the pile of sticks that were the roof rafters went back together. It took a little yeah. longer than initially thought. Yeah. Wow. So you started building this building over the course of a couple of years once we started making our own wine. So we sold the teeny tiny bit of fruit in 2007 and 2008 to another winery. He goes to deliver the fruit. He's like, well, why am I going to give all this hard work away? He spent all summer, literally, this was the first baby, just hand hanging every cluster. Each shoot was positioned, so nothing crossed, nothing touched, um, and turning that over to someone else. And so he started apprenticing with a couple of other winemakers in 2007, 8, and 9. In 09, we kept the fruit to make our first vintage. 250 cases, one wine, what are we going to do with this? Well, let's build a little tasting room that can be maybe a pottery studio as well, because at this point, we'd bought the property to build a studio that never happened because we were f farming now. Mm -hmm. and. Um, it was going to be a pottery studio and be open to the public on the big holiday years, holiday events. Clackamas County had a different idea about that, and so we <laughs> dove headfirst into um, changing our land use policy be, to be able to host um, wine tastings on the property. You had to um, be a commercial facility, so it couldn't be uh, a pottery studio anymore. It had to be a dedicated tasting room. And so we went through a very lengthy process with the county, um, a county that is not as attuned as Yamhill County to small wineries and um, wine growers. It, it was still pretty new. The only ones that they'd had were a little bit larger and they didn't, we didn't quite fit into any specific category for them. So it was just one more uphill battle. And Andrew, we are on the furthest out, outskirts of Clackamas County, so we have to go to, is it Oregon City? Mm -hmm. Every time we needed to go meet with a building inspector. <laughs> so a good 40, 45 minute drive every time we needed to go do something. But we do have an illuminated bicycle rack that no one's ever used. We've had more horses here than bicycles. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Clackamas County. <laughs> um, but, Everything worked out in the end. It just took a little bit longer and uh, got the tasting room ready and has been in use. Um, really, we opened it with the release of our 2009 in the spring of 2011. So from planting first vines in 2000 <coughs> and spring of 2005, first wine in for 2000, vintage 09. Do you think if you were doing it today, it would be as difficult? Do you think Clackamas County is catching up? Or is it still... This was just a couple years, ago. Couple years ago. Yeah. No, so I don't think they've... They they're haven't trying. streamlined. They're trying. <clears throat> There's work to, to get all of the counties that have wine production occurring where people would want to have tasting rooms aligned uh, from a state level so that when someone goes into this process, they, they don't have to deal with the same layers of complexity we did. 
Yeah, but I don't think, I think, there, I don't think that's still quite formulated yet. They're still in progress. But the from a tourism side, Clackamas County Tourism and Territories is incredible, and they want more wineries, and they want to highlight more wineries. It's just uh, slightly been more challenging working from the building process <laughs> and so forth. But, but from a tourism level, open arms, welcome. Um, they've been very, very supportive and trying to do as much as they can. It's a big, it's a big county and a big territory to to work with, um, but. Well, it's too bad the tourism and building departments aren't in the same building yeah. because they sure have never talked to each other before. <laughs> yeah. This is a history archive. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know, though. I mean, those kinds of struggles we see it in the collections that we have several decades ago when people like David Alizheim trying to fight those fights and protect the land, and so. It's, it's a common story. Andrea, I want to make sure we didn't cut you off with the liberal arts thing. I, oh, I no. can't remember if you were able to answer fully. For him? For you. Oh, for me. I didn't really have a liberal arts background. It was a science, a science background. Um, I was going to get my BS. And then um, when I, we chose to, to, to work to make this happen instead of going off and finishing um, that degree, it I knew that I needed what I needed to bring to the situation. He was the visionary, he was the workhorse as far as getting out. We, I mean, we both planted the vines, we both helped, you know, took care of them those first few years, but you start having children, I'm not able to get out into the vineyard and help as much. I'm not able to get into the winery and help as much. Um, but from a business side of things, I was able to do to do a lot more. And so I do um, all of the paperwork. From a liberal arts visionary background, the paperwork gene isn't there um, at all. So <laughs> <laughs> the record keeping and so forth, it falls to me. So um, I, I got thrown into the business side of things, but it was, it's been a lot of fun. Um, we're now making enough wine to, you know, we sell 90% of it here through the tasting room, but you have to keep records. You've got to do all of your reports with the OLCC and the TTB. Um, still working with the Shehala Mountain Wine Growers and every sale that you make, you have to account for. Um, and wine clubs and wine club parties and that sort of thing. We're now in two states. We're in Washington and Chicago. That requires licensing in other states. So um, it's been a learning curve for sure, but but um, that's what I get to do. Yeah, but it really is a partnership. Without both of us working to achieve our goals, we would sink. Um, I could make wine, but there, we, we have no place for it to go. <laughs> and we learned from your from your dad that you were just in uh, the is a food and food and drink. Food and wine. Food and wine. Yeah. And that, in the month of April. That, uh, <laughs> and that you just uh, recently received an order from Iceland. So I think that's that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. How did that? Did you have any idea how that happened? We're assuming when Food and Wine put it on their website and then they put it on their social media pages, um, you know, it's something, using Amphora, have, it's, it's been around for, since the beginning of winemaking, that's how they've made wine. It's newer to the United States and it's absolutely new that, I shouldn't say that, it's, it's unique that a winemaker, wine grower, and ceramics artist 
all packaged into one, making the amphora to put the grapes that he's grown in that he's making. That's that's been, um, I think, the story recently, and is very very unique. Um, so when they have started promoting that, it's been it's been in Forbes, it's been in Wine and Food and Wine, it's been in the Lewis and Clark Chronicle, it's been um, in a number of different arenas, and. I received an email with a wine club sign up from Iceland. It's like, how does that work? I don't know how to sell wine to Iceland. So <laughs> let's call the Oregon Wine Board and see what resources we have there. And they're a terrific resource. Um, so they're checking into how, how does that happen? <laughs> Where do we go from here? Do I need to contact Iceland to get a permit to sell, an export permit to, to be able to sell wine to this one gentleman? It may not work, but it's something you learn something new every day in this business. One question I'd like to ask people um, is sort of a it's sort of an either or question where you can answer both parts of it. We like to ask um, what one of the most important things you've learned has been, or on the other hand, if there's something you could do differently and could do over again, what would it be? <laughs> what do you think? One of the most important things for us, and this is not how most people go into starting their own business. There was no business plan, none whatsoever. We did not sit on paper and draw a business plan. Um, it's, for us, it's been taking things as they come. Good, um, if, we, if we'd had a business plan, we probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have done anything. No. We would have been so discouraged. We it's, wouldn't have ever tried. <laughs> <laughs> so going into it for for us has been um, slow and steady. You know, we started two acres, an acre and a half the year after that. We started in, in very small increments and we were able to learn over that time. You know, we learned after the first two and a half acres what to do in the next acre the next year and the year after that. So we learned in, you know, the, the planting arena and the farming arena and that allowed us to grow at a, at a slow pace. We didn't have the economic um, funding to buy 20 acres and plant 20 acres all at once. So we've, we've kind of learned as we've gone, but we've also been afforded many, many opportunities to grow because we've been open to them and open to opportunities in, in growth for growth. So in the recent purchase of um, the additional acreage was one of those, we can't afford to, but we can't afford not to. How do we make this happen? There's, there's never going to be another opportunity to buy adjacent property. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, directly adjacent to you for that future growth, and a lot of a lot of things um, came into play to make that happen, and we were very, very lucky. So, taking opportunities as they've been afforded to us, it's probably been one of the most important things. There are little things, you know, with with the way we laid things out and and planted and spacing. I mean, there there are small things I might change in hindsight, but. All in all, I think the way we went about it worked for us. Um, you know, we, we didn't plan it all at once. We did a couple acres a year, an acre a year to get us to where we're at. And, and um, you know, that, that's worked with our growth model. So we've gone from 250 cases in 2009 to a little over 2,000 cases for 2015. And it's impressive growth. It is. Oh, I'm still 
thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> he thinks, I'm thinking, wow, it, I'm thinking it's great. She's thinking, <laughs> like, this is cork, not so great. Corks <laughs> and labels and glass and, um, you know, because everything gets bottled at different times and then it gets released at different times. So I'm thinking about all the work that I get to do on that end to make that happen. So he's like, yes. 2,000 cases. We're, we're reaching that. There's zeros behind there. It's not 250 cases. And I'm thinking there are zeros behind corks and glass. And so um, that's our, our two personalities. But And it works. In hindsight, um, as we are growing, I'm, the tasting room's getting small. So that that is one thing I would have done. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. We probably should have built a larger tasting room from B the beginning. Built a building that had room for growth. Mm -hmm. So in the summer, we can have great parties on the patio, but the, the room is, is we're outgrowing quickly. Otherwise. Well, I think that concludes our formal questions for you. Is there anything that we should have asked? that we didn't, that you would like to speak on? And if Steve's back here behind me, Steve, is there anything that we should have asked? Um, well, I'm gonna, I'd suggest to Andrew that he, he might mention that uh, his ancestors were old time farmers in Oregon territory. Okay. <laughs> Let's see if I can get this right. <laughs> so is it six greats ago? Six generations. Six generations. Okay, so six generations prior, uh, my my mother. Oh gosh, I've had it. This is gonna kill me. I'm not gonna be able to get then this. Come on, history major. Uh, <laughs> so six six generations ago, my mother's family settled um, near Flores Lake, and. Let's get it right. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you want to sit down? Do you, no, we can no, no. They, they said they came out here in 1845 in a wagon. wagon. I know that. <laughs> and they settled on Mill Creek near Sheridan, right on the Polk Yam Hill County line, to establish a farm. And then Andrew's great 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 grandfather went off to fight in the Rogue River Indian Wars in Southern Oregon, and liked wow. the country down there. And so they pulled up and moved yet again to Flores Lake near Cape Blanco, which is as far west as you can go in Oregon, and established a big sheep ranch. That also happens to be one of Andrew's favorite windsurfing locales. And uh, one day I pointed out to him that his ancestors are buried there in the little cemetery where he goes right right by to go windsurfing. Wow. Well, there you go. He just can't get away from family history. <laughs> His, and his grandfather's family did um, cranberry farming down in Case Bay and Bandon. Or, you know, at some point, all of our ancestors were farmers, and it's um, it's been wonderful to to show our children what you can what you can do with hard work and perseverance. And um, they sometimes see that their friends are all living in a little neighborhood and can ride bikes to their houses. And and we're a little far removed. We have to make you know play play times and drive them to the friend's house, um, but. But then their friends come out here and say, wow, you get to live here. You get to run and play and dig and jump and go make forts in the middle of the vines. And, and um, we feel very lucky that we're afforded the opportunity to bring our children up in this beautiful place. So. Sounds like an opportunity to put your kids' friends to work out in the video. I know. Mm. I'm just waiting a little bit older. <laughs> Probably have to sign some waivers. But <laughs> <laughs> we... Uh, 
have a couple of photos of the kids um, clearing on the new property because before, they weren't born yet when we were cutting, you know, the timber was cut and Andrew had rented a 200 series track of, he'd never run one of these pieces of equipment before in 2005. He's pulling all the stumps. We're right where we're sitting right here was a huge stump pile that his, he and his father decided one day would be a great idea to, to light. Um, it was a little... No, when something like this, Andrew, you ought to light these stumps so that you can get your garden reestablished. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> Are you sure we should light it this time of year, Dad? It seems a little dry. Oh, we'll just light the corner, and if it gets going too much, we'll put it out. And things didn't go quite as Dad had planned. We had a an inferno. It was like had its own wind. Yeah, we were, had a vortex of wind and it burned for two embers an inch around. I have a photo getting from sucked into the, the air. house from the doorstep, that, and you can feel the heat from there. I mean, it was huge. We had the Very whole property to... on fire. The, no. the embers were, yes, the embers were dropping from the sky and they'd ignite the bark dust and it was terrifying. So how many stumps did you pull in the new acreage? About 1,200 stumps on the new side. The kids are old enough to uh, to be able to, you know, experience that part of it because it was this was all done before they were born, and so now, you know, our sons our son is obsessed with tractors and track hoes. He was two, almost two, and Daddy's running a track hoe outside the back window, and he was just by the window, just glued. You know, Daddy's on the hoe. <laughs> so it was very cute. Um, and now they I get to I, clear, clear property. It might be worth mentioning a little bit of local history regarding Parrot Mountain and what happened here Thanks. prior to us starting. So Parrot Mountain used to be known as Wild Horse Hill. The Native Americans referred to it as Wild Horse Hill. And the Heater family um, of Heater Road uh, started squatting up here in the late 1850s. And they got their homestead established in 1872 and the heater uncles cleared and, and planted hops here, which they grew until prohibition. And they found that it was an incredibly difficult piece of land to farm because of its steep nature and rocky, uh, rocky content and um, lack of water. So after prohibition, um, Bob Heater, who's now 97, um, had inherited the, the property from his uncles and they grew, um, black caps and then they tried strawberries and in the 1950s Bob planted uh, the, the property to timber and so we we cut the timber stand that he planted about 50 years ago um, both on this piece of property and, and the one to the east of us. He's been um, a really neat man to get to know. He was in his late 80s early 90s and he would run this big bulldozer along the back property that we now that we purchased from him to keep the the road cleared so that you know they could get in and access it i mean 80 something almost 90 years old running that bulldozer and so he and andrew would chat over the fence line and i think he was so all right go help him get unstuck when he'd get hung up on a stump or something he yeah. was so pleased that we were growing something on the property, that we were farming it, because no, none of his ancestors could really grow anything that of value up here. And none of his, you know, his daughter still lives in the, um, in the uh, Century Farm, uh, two properties up, and nobody was interested in farming. You know, they would sell off parcels of land here and there, um, but they were tree farmers. And so he was just, 
he loved that we were doing something with the land and that we were farming it. And I think that that was integral in um, his willingness to sell us that piece to the, to the east um, because he knew that we were going to be stewards of the land and that we were going to take care of it. We weren't just going to subdivide it into four new homes. Um, we were, we were going to farm it. So that was how that worked out. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Is there anything else? I know we've got a part two with the amphora coming up, but is there anything else you want to talk about? I think we've been all over the place. But and we can certainly cover some more um, later if you think of something. So for now, I think I'm going to close the interview. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.